0: Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world.
1: Welcome to the 373rd edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. We're broadcasting in this our eighth year across the world. We're broadcasting from Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, California, where technology meets entertainment. It's only seven days till Christmas, so I want to take this opportunity to wish everybody listening to this program a very happy Christmas or holiday season, and I hope that you have a very happy new year got a question for you what metal is more valuable platinum gold or palladium if you said gold or platinum you would be wrong palladium prices are likely to stay higher than gold and platinum for quite a while palladium is at 1243 an ounce Gold at 1239 and Platinum's at 834 an ounce. Some projections have Palladium hitting $1,750 an ounce in 2019. So I can hear some of you ask, what the fuck is Palladium? Never heard of it. Well, Palladium's a noble metal. That means it's resistant to corrosion. And it's created as a byproduct of mining other metals like Platinum, gold and nickel. Now, for decades, um, gold miners thought that that silvery substance that formed in the sides of mine shafts was just useless, worthless. But the chemical properties of palladium are unusual. When palladium reacts with a car exhaust, for example, it converts harmful carbon monoxide into much less harmful carbon monoxide. So when the US first started mandating tailpipe emission standards in the 1970s, the market for palladium began to grow, and today, 80% of the world's palladium is used to make catalytic converters. Now, thanks to all the governments around the world that are making emission standards tighter and tighter and uh, make manufacturers produce cleaner cars, demand for palladium has skyrocketed over the last eight years. Now, if you add to that the fact that recent labour problems in South African mines have led to decreased palladium availability, this has caused palladium prices to increase more than 50% just in the last four months despite the flat prices of other precious metals. At the end of 2018, palladium demand is expected to outstrip supply by 1.2 million ounces. Last week, the largest palladium producer in the world announced that it's going to invest $12 billion in palladium mining over the next five years to try and alleviate the shortages so that being said palladium's high price will be short-lived since palladium's price is tied to the demand for gas guzzling cards cars the rapid rise in the production of electric cars will cause palladium prices to eventually fall you know gold's a winner for. A reason it's enjoyed industrial, financial, and aesthetic applications that make it value. It has remained valuable even during economic slumps. But before gold takes its mantle back in the next few years, palladium will continue to lead the way. In fact, if you're looking for a good investment in the short term, over a four or five year period, palladium's probably it. Do you get my daily 30-second read business newsletter? If you don't, you should. We now have about 1.7 million daily subscribers. It takes 30 seconds to read every day. And each day we tackle a different subject. We talk about um, advances in medicine. We talk about new apps, new technology to subjects like Hyperloop, autonomous cars, blockchain, the Chinese economy, all sorts of things. And to keep abreast of all the new developments in business and technology and make sure that you're in a great position to compete in this ever-competitive world, you should get the Bob Pritchard newsletter. It is really easy to read. Uh, In today's newsletter, for example, we talked about how Tesla's technology is obsolete. That's right. Tesla's technology is obsolete, and that's putting the Tesla car company at risk that's an absolute must-know piece of information. It's really easy to get the newsletter. Simply go to my website, bobpritchard.com, and enroll. Easy as that. And if you want to get off the newsletter, just go to the Do Not Subscribe, click it, and you will be off immediately, not like some of those newsletters that you just can't get rid of no matter what the hell you do. There's a... Uh, futuristic car that can solve a major multi-billion dollar problem that's facing people like Amazon and Walmart and Target. The company behind Walmart's pickup tower has developed a self-driving car with a robotic arm, and this delivers packages to homes and business. So autonomous delivery could be a boom for retailers, which you've seen consumers demand free shipping, while shipping costs have continued to increase. You know, if people don't get free shipping, they won't order the product, which is really weird. They'll pay $110 for something, but if you don't get free shipping, they won't buy it. Hello? Um, Amazon, for example, saw its shipping costs double from 2015 to 2017, which is only two years, and it doubled to $21.7 billion. Shipping costs. It will also displace millions of workers. The car's called Lotte, L-O-T-T-E, and it's a robotic courier, a self-driving car that could totally change the last-mile delivery industry. The car automatically picks up packages, loads them into the car, transports them autonomously, and then uses the robotic arm at the other end to place the packages in pickup lockers outside homes and businesses. Eventually, it'll be able to deliver to mailboxes and pickup towers as well. The Lottie, designed by an Estonia-based technology firm, is among the only (laughs) self-driving delivery vehicles that can complete deliveries without any human intervention whatsoever. The robot courier will replace human labour, which makes the last mile delivery much cheaper. This, in turn, will help e-commerce grow even more. It'll be less expensive because it eliminates labour costs and is extremely convenient as the parcels are waiting for you safely in your own parcel locker. How cool is that? A 2016 McKinsey study estimated that autonomous vehicles, including drones, would account for more than 80% of all consumer parcel deliveries over the next 5 to 10 years. And according to KPMG, approximately a million autonomous robots will be on the streets in the next 5 to 10 years. Now um, Ford and Walmart recently partnered to begin testing the delivery of goods using autonomous vehicles. Kroger's partnered with driverless car company Neuro to deliver groceries using autonomous vehicles. And uh, US grocery players are continuing to tackle the expensive challenge of last mile delivery, which is the final step in getting a product to a shopper's home. It's a feat that's pretty difficult with fragile project produce like, say, fresh food, for example. And it's further complicated by populations that vary wildly across the US with some areas far denser than others. Now, Kroger, like all other companies involved in products distribution, is building out autonomous warehouses right throughout the US. It's all very fascinating stuff. My guest after this short break is actor-turned-producer Spiro Dean Stamboulis, who is really making a difference. He's a great guy, very smart, knows everything there is to know about filmmaking and uh, he's really making a difference affecting people by sharing unique ideas concepts and stories through film tv and media it's a really interesting interview so i hope you enjoy it this is bob pritchard broadcasting across the world this week from hollywood boulevard in hollywood california and i'll be back in just a moment
0: You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard
1: Straight Talking Radio Show. Over the past eight years, gee, has it been eight years already? It's incredible. We've given you an insight into the lives of some of the world's most interesting business people. We've spoken about what they do, the services they provide. We try to find what their major challenges have been, and I guess underneath all, what we try to do is find out what it is that makes them tick. It's very hard to be successful. Only about 2% of startup businesses succeed, so 98% fail. So what do the 2% do that the 98% don't do? and today we're going you know we talk about we talk to a variety of industries and today we're going to talk to someone who's in the film business and this it's probably around about the same figures of every 2000 actors there's probably one that's making a dollar and for every 2000 producers there's probably only a handful that are making a dollar so it's a very tough racket and particularly in Los Angeles where every person you meet is somehow in, in the film and television business. I mean, they usually working as a car park attendant or a waiter or something, but when you ask them, they're in the film business. They're just waiting for that big break. And, you know, it's said that if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life, and that's true. And uh, for actor-turned-producer Sparrow Dean Stamboulis, this truism defined 20-plus years bridging big-screen business with a shop for people. He's a really interesting guy. I met him at metal. You, know, you often hear me talking about metal, and I think I've interviewed about 140 metal people or something on this show over eight years. And uh, he's a really easy guy to talk to. He's smart. He's nice. He's a good guy. And uh, his affinity for engaging individuals and telling stories and connecting resources... Has led organically from his first love, which is acting, to a robust TV and film production career. So he's gone from being an actor to a producer. And Sparrow said he didn't realise the things that he'd been doing all his his life were a job. So that's the true definition of do what you love and you'll never work. Sparrow's company, SDS Pictures, is really making a difference. It's affecting people by sharing unique ideas and concepts and stories. Through film, TV, and media in general, he helps people find their inner voice as well as helping them to express themselves and how to share it with the world, which is what we all try to do. SDS Pictures develops and produces quality projects and consulting to filmmakers on how to make a project from start to finish. As I said, Sparrow's a great guy. We had a big chat at Metal, and uh, I really enjoyed it, so I thought I'd invite him on the show. So, hi, Sparrow. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. You are being heard right across the world.
2: Well, thank you so much, Bob. I really appreciate the time, and I'm looking forward to having a conversation with you and enlightening your audience on uh, a little bit about the business of... The entertainment business, so to speak. So, thank you for the kind words and explaining uh, a little bit of my journey as a film and television producer. I uh, thank you again, and um, I'm I'm fairly open to discussing my career and the the highlights, the pitfalls, the difficulties, and the things that have allowed me to kind of squeeze my way into that two percent of people yeah. that uh are doing what we love in a in a difficult business and uh achieving a sense of
1: success so you, you just said that you're open to discussing most of the things that are in your past what are the things that you're not open to discussing <laughs> <laughs> well i shouldn't say i shouldn't say i'm not i i the, the one thing bob i i
2: realize is as i've uh matured and dealt with some things I don't like to um, give energy to negative people or negative situations oh, my so great. some of the things that i have I have um, overcome or, or worked through uh, either when I was a, um, a, a working actor or, or now as a as a producer is basically that I, um, I I have I have learned it's not worth the energy to tell people about the negative people and how they can, you know, manipulate you or take advantage of you. I think that you acknowledge that. You understand that there is negatives and dark energy. Uh, that's what makes you appreciate, makes you appreciate the light and positive energy, uh, and, and the beneficial aspects
1: of, good people and positive people i couldn't agree more negative people are a waste of space they're just dream takers and there's nothing exactly you know, you've got to you've so got there's to nothing there's 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 nothing that i i would not talk
2: about i just will refrain from uh okay. i just mentioning certain certain people or individuals companies things like that that are uh you know, have yeah, been sure. have
1: negative and the industry's full of them. So how did you start producing? Where where was the bridge between acting and producing? I ironically
2: and I'll try to keep it as a concise story, I was surviving as an actor, meaning I didn't have another job, I was making a living, I was working on a low budget feature, I had done commercials, a lot of things like that, some sure. some television. I was working on a film and I overheard the director, producer, you know, they were talking and they needed a location. I heard them, they needed a bar. And I said, oh, I know a guy who has a bar. And they said, really? I'm like, yeah, you know, if you guys need it, you know, what kind of bar are you looking for? Long and short of it, I provided a friend that had a bar. Then as it continued, they needed a vintage like a luxury car, Jaguar, Aston Martin. I said, I have a buddy of mine who collects uh, vintage cars. Before you know it, they were able to use his car at a very, very low cost. They needed a house in Malibu. I said, I have a friend that has a house in Malibu. Before you know it, we were shooting in the house in Malibu. They needed someone who was proficient in, in doing a certain kind of camera work, a steady camera. I said, oh, I know a guy, you know, he's in between jobs. So before you know it, uh, the director, producer approached me and said, so how long have you been producing? And I, you know, I looked at him and I was such an actor. I said, no, no, I'm, I'm not a producer. I'm an actor. That that's, And he goes, no, you're a producer, whether you like it or not. Isn't producing, you know, raising money? And he goes, well, that is a portion of it. He goes, but producing is being able to connect people, being able to find something that is necessary or needed and filling that gap or void. And I said, wait a minute, I've been connecting people ever since I was a a little kid. My friends, hey, you need, so at that point I realized, wait a minute, I've I've been producing, and I didn't even know what producing was. So that was the first real hit in the head, and before you know it, uh, the universe starts providing opportunities and either you're open to seeing them or not, but I sure. I saw them and um, did my first short film. Uh, went back to that same director producer, uh, said, "Hey, I'm thinking about doing a feature." He gave me some guidance, and um, I took that and and basically you either you know you either swim or you sink, and I um, I took to it. And it was a very swimming? natural. Yes, I'm still swimming and, 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 and starting, to, starting to actually uh, make some real headway. So that's,
1: that's an exciting part of it. I, one of the things that you get asked all the time, and uh, you know, most of the people that listen to this program are in the world don't know that much probably about the film and television industry. Um, can you explain to us the difference between producing and directing? Absolutely. Uh, and a lot of people do not know
2: it, even people in the business. So directing is primarily seeing the vision of the story and executing it as far as working with a cinematographer to line up the shots, then also to help procure the actors to execute the story that is being shown on either film or TV. They are directing the people in front of the camera very rarely do they deal with anything behind the camera that is where the big separation is producing is usually all behind the camera dealing with all the essentials of making the actual movie usually producers either work concurrently or hire the director they're the ones that get the project, whatever it is, if it's a television script or a commercial or a movie, they get that. They then start to build all the pieces. They either raise the money, they option the script, they build the team, they work on the locations, they work on the story, and producing is is more more multifaceted. Directing is more straightforward. And uh, the producer's job is to basically make sure that the director has all the instruments and tools to be able to execute telling the story and his vision.
1: Most directors, uh, I I seem to know a lot more directors than I do producers. Um, But most of the producers that I know seem to spend most of their life trying to raise money. Uh, yes yes that is that is one of the
2: one of the uh i guess difficulties or pitfalls of producing is raising (laughs) it, it is it is indeed i think for no matter what you do raising money it seems to be something that is is a constant evolving and changing difficult process uh Producing—that is part of producing. Producing is not only raising money; sure. uh, it also there is producing that you bring in equipment, team, uh, you bring scripts, you bring uh, projects. You also do a lot of the logistics of the project. But finding the money is definitely one of the large things because if you don't have money, you really cannot move forward on a project until the funding is in place.
1: Yeah, it's, it's interesting because filmmaking really is no different than an entrepreneur. We get a hell of a lot of entrepreneurs listening to this program. Um, in fact, probably 50% of our audience are entrepreneurs and uh, it's really the same thing. You know, the, you're raising money, you're bringing all the elements together, you, you're sort of balancing it all out. You, you're really the... the um, choir master, if you like, and uh, so it's not that much different. So when you decided to be a producer, how did you raise that first money that you needed? Well, ironically,
2: uh, I have have now uh, done two television pilots, and I have also worked on commercials and have done nine feature films. Right. Out of those nine feature films, only two of them have I been required or have actually raised funding for. Seven of the nine were projects that needed my skill set as far as a producer, meaning bringing a team together, right. executing all the other things. But as far as the two projects that I did raise the money for, uh, it, it was uh, very challenging but what i believe is if you have the correct project and you know how to i guess explain how you plan on executing it and also giving a you know an roi or a return because again yeah, sure. investing in movies is is a risky is a is a risky venture but what i will say is it's a risky venture If you do not plan, that's like saying, well, I'm going to buy a house. Well, you need to do all the legwork. You have to make sure that whatever house you're buying, wherever you're buying it, makes sense fiscally and also for the future. So when raising money, one of the big factors is basically being able to convince people that your movie, your plan, is better than 75% of the ones out there because approximately 65-70% to of films are the ones that are losing money or breaking even now with that being said that's not a very good uh, ratio so again the movies that I did raising the money I made sure that everyone knew that the way I was executing it was going to be far more beneficial for an ROI than other projects out there. Yeah. Uh, so in so that, that plan itself is one of the ways to do it. Now, as far as raising money, you know what? There is no one way. Not it's kind right. of, it's, it, it, it really is true. It's one of those things where, you know, someone could just run into somebody that happens to have uh, money you could also have basically a, a, a somebody who is financially stable or is beyond where they need to be and they need a write off yeah. it could be it could be somebody who wants to uh Get in the limelight, so to speak, or try to yeah. cross pollinate what their investor investments are. It's like, Hey, I'm going to buy mutual funds. I'm going to buy stocks. I'm going to buy real estate. I'm going to take a portion of my money and put it into something that may have a really great upswing, but is probably risky. Sure. Uh, so, so there's a lot of different ways that that can can be. I guess there's a lot of different ways to skin a cat. Now, in the situations that I have uh, raised money, I have not gone to people that have invested in movies, especially in Los Angeles <laughs> a lot every of them. every person well no every person... anybody who's got enough money to put something in has probably been hit up you know seven hundred yeah. times right. uh, in in one year so so you need to find people that uh either are not um Film investors and they're looking to maybe, you know, figure something out that could be different or exciting. Uh, there's a lot of different secrets, but I would say stay out of Los Angeles and, and look and look at other people that aren't as jaded by the film and entertainment industry that might find the excitement of making a movie, which is kind of a, a different kind of thing. Now, for me, I got a lot of my money out of Los Angeles, but there were not people that invested in movies. Yes. They invested in me as a person because they knew my integrity. They also knew that I put skin in the game. The two movies that I raised money for, I put my own money in. And if you read any book that says, hey, how to make a movie, it says don't put your own money in. Yes. Well, if you don't put your own money in, how can you then ask somebody to trust you if you're not willing
1: to trust yourself. Sure. I think a couple of things that people listening to this program probably don't realize, firstly, that if you make a movie through a studio, one of the major studios, mm-hmm. your chances of making any money are about nil because even if the film takes a billion dollars, mm-hmm. <laughs> the studios very seldom will declare a profit. Um, I had a friend who went to Sony, and he was a, an accounts guy, and he went to Sony, and he, he um, got the budget from Sony for the, for the film. <laughs> <laughs> and being, I laugh. Uh, I'm he, sorry. You know, <laughs> being an accountant, he went through every line, and he said, you know, 90% of the things they take money for and the deductions they make are all bullshit. You know, they're just simply a way of taking your profit and putting it in their pocket. And I think that's one thing. I think the other thing that people don't realise is that there are people in Los Angeles and probably elsewhere that are prepared to put money into a movie providing they can be an executive producer. When you go to a movie and you see six executive producers, generally they had absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with the film except they put in money. So they get to walk down the red carpet, they possibly get to meet the star, and that's all they really want out of it. (laughs)
2: Both of those things are very, very, very accurate, which is why they're starting to show signs of more filmmakers making independent films because there is opportunities to mitigate the cost, which then mitigates the risk. Because if if I go to a studio, there's 20 people that are collecting paychecks and they're really not doing anything. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> now, they also do something and I'm not going to name any names, but most of these distributors or <clears throat> or as far as like we said these companies, these larger companies that are making movies, they do something that's called cross-collateralizing. Yeah. And what that does is that means that if I'm making if they take 10 movies that are independent movies and they decide to come on but they have ten, 10 movies that are are basically uh, movies that, in turn, are the Avengers, the blah blah blah, the yeah. uh, these other these other large movies. Well, they end up shifting some of the cost of those movies onto the smaller movies? Yeah, that happens a so, lot. <laughs> so so what happens is the guys that are doing the smaller movies are paying for some of the bigger movies. Yeah, I think it's called and getting screwed. Yes, yes, it is. It is. At which which is ironic because one of the things that I do with one of my 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 most recently released feature film was I approached the executive producers, the people that basically put the money in, and I said, Hey, we have an opportunity to go with a large distributor they're actually willing to give us money up front. Now, we had finished the movie, but you still need to get your movie out there. Now, with that being said, how do you do it if you don't have a distributor? Well, it can be done, and more recently, it's becoming a little more common because these distributors say, we're going to give you this much money up front, which unless it's more than what your movie costs, Most likely, that is all the money you will see. It's what's called a minimum guarantee. We will give you this up front. And then whatever we make, we're going to split 75 your favor, 25 our favor. And it seems to sound good until (laughs) you end up realizing that the cost of the movie that they are marketing, advertising, blah, 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 becomes very unrealistic meaning that they say they spend much more than what they they are actually spending now if I want to go as a filmmaker to one of those people and say I want to look at your books which you know if you strike the deal correctly and it's in your contract you can they spent that money they just didn't spend it on my movie they spent it on another movie Yep. On they, and they take whatever they spent on some of those and they take a, a, a fraction and put it onto mine which makes my movie look like it's in the red yep. which means that they are making money off of my movie but they're charging me but you don't for get the to cost see it. of another movie. Yeah. So, so you can, don't get to see it. Yeah. Which okay. is why these independent movies always seem to lose money even if they cost, let's say i.e. a movie costs a million dollars and it makes 3000000 million. You're like, well, that's a win. Well, not if the distributor says, listen, realistically, sorry, but we spent about $1.5 in marketing and advertising. And then the, well, theater, you're like, okay. then the theater gets
1: 30%, 40
2: exactly, exactly. So that's where, you know, so for, for my most recent film that came out, we had an option to go that route and we opted against it. Yes. Because all that was was ego to have a big company represent the movie. I went to the investors and said, okay, well, here's our options. We can go with a big company, say our movie was distributed by this big company, take a portion of our funding up front, and hope that the movie blows the doors out and we get some more money. Or we take an independent route and we distribute the movie ourselves and we know whatever money we make will come back to us. Sure. And that was the route that we took. And um, it was a, it, it, it's still in the process, but it's a very interesting learning uh, process as far as how it's happening. And then on top of that, one of the things that's amazing is is that one thing I do realize and learning from that is you still need to have marketing and advertising dollars, but you know where all those dollars are going.
1: Yeah, sure. Now, I'm, I'm only on the periphery of the film and, and television business. I'm actually a chairman of a film company in Los Angeles, but um, people send me scripts all day long. They come in from all over the world. Mary McGillicuddy, who lives in some little suburb in Croatia, has written a script and they send it out. So, and what people don't realise is that 99.9% of these scripts never see the light of day. So if, if I've got a script and I think it's pretty good and I take it to you, what are the criteria that you use to determine whether or not you're interested in um, taking this script any further?
2: Bob, first off, I will say this: that <clears throat> a large, very large amount of the scripts that are submitted, written, are not good. No, uh, and right. I don't mean to sound negative, but no, most of them right. are not. Yeah, and and um, so that's really a key factor: is having a good script. Now, there are <clears throat> there are basically phases within the first twelve pages of a script. You know if the script. Is is readable? Yeah. Uh, and as the scripts progress, once you get to approximately two thirds into the script, page sixty-six to seventy-ish, um, a lot of scripts the bottom drops out. Yeah. But if the script is well written, the characters are developed. That's the first step. Okay, that is great. Is having a script that is well written and makes sense and is interesting and the characters are all multifaceted, has a beginning, middle, and end, like a really good book as well. Right. Now, <clears throat> that's the first criteria. The second criteria is what the genre of the film is. Now, it all depends on who the producer or filmmaker is that wants to make the movie or not make the movie. Because a script, if it's, you know, you have, you have comedy, You have drama, you have thriller, you have horror, you have action, you have family. Now the big market is the big faith-based movies. So it depends on what the genre is. Certain genres have niches. Now, dramas, believe it or not, even with big actors, don't do that well unless they're incredibly well marketed. So for me personally to do a straight-up drama... Is, is something that I would not do unless it's ten years down the road of my career, and I can establish something like that. And be you know, that's where you can go. Okay, well, you know, you're this person. You're JJ Abrams. You are, you Rock know, on. Martin Scorsese. You're some. You're someone. You know, you're Brian Grazer. You're someone yeah. that can take take a drama and know even if you spend enough money, the movie will make its money back. So the the genre where a lot of these independent filmmakers now are doing more of the horror or the thriller and uh, comedies tend to not do well because you need to have big comedic actors yes. and those big comedic actors demand big comedic paychecks. Yes. Uh, so so as an independent filmmaker, I look at things that are high concept. But they're contained. They have limited locations. They have things that aren't going to cost an enormous amount. I don't have, you know, car crashes and airplanes and subways and things like that. So if it's, if it's, if it's limited locations, a well crafted story, good characters for actors to be able to sink their teeth into. That's the thing that I go towards. So most recently, the movie Warning Shot, which is the one that I said we self-distributed, yeah. that was a, a very, very well-written script. It was a Nichols finalist, which is a big writing accolade. So, It also had limited locations. Most of the movie took place in a small town, on a farm, in a barn, in limited locations. It also had limited, multifaceted characters. The characters all had their own unique voices and there were great opportunities for every actor to take one of those roles on and make it their own. It also was a contained thriller, meaning that it had thrilling elements. It was a hostage situation. It had a strong message behind the, the story itself. It had a larger story and then a smaller story. Yeah. And so, with that, that was something that excited me, but every filmmaker is different. I look at it as, how can I change the world? How can I share a story that is exciting and compelling? How can I also make a movie that won't cost an arm and a leg,
1: but will make money? Okay. I- I've got a question. I've got three or four really good friends who are directors, writers, and they make a great deal of money rewriting scripts. You know, somebody will <laughs> present a script and the studios send them out to them and they rewrite them. And uh, so what's the, what elements has a script got to have for a studio or somebody like yourself to sit there and say, yeah, well, this has got a sort of – basic story but the script shit out so I need to get somebody really good to rewrite it or somebody who knows about writing scripts so and a lot of
2: times those people are either they're, they're qualified writers or they're called what's called ghost writers basically yes. they take a story and they come in and they rewrite the actual script
1: because there's a now, real skill in writing a script it's you know people just there know is and write scripts <laughs> and they, they, they write dialogue <laughs> and that's not what a script is No, no. A
2: matter of fact, basically one of the the big things for that is is the story. The bones of the movie have to be unique and central and interesting. Now, if it is, then you can bring in, I'll give you an example. A script came to our office and my producing partner read it and said, hey, this is a very interesting idea. The script is about a five, right. but the idea is an eight and a half. Yeah, and I said okay. So I read the script and I agreed. The script was like a five, but the idea was, was very interesting. Mm. Now the idea itself was that you know someone was commissioned to paint um, art in a, in a almost like a mansion on a on, on a, a lake area yeah. and I was like, okay, well you have a limited location, you have you have this house on a lake, so you find a house on a lake, but the compelling story was that the house was built on an old cemetery that is no longer there yeah. so now you have an interesting story because now you, you're dealing with some kind of supernatural or high concept now this painter is affected, and there's something called automatic writing or automatic painting, where somebody channels some kind of energy, can be a spirit, can be whatever, and starts to either write or paint. Now, the story is, the guy basically starts to paint feverishly, and these paintings start to come alive one way or another. Now, it's the concept is very interesting. It's it's talking about, you know, spirituality. It's ta- it's also spooky, but it's not like, you know, cutting up people bloody horror. It is it's more of psychological. So, that concept, that story is well was a good story. Was it well written? No. The characters were very one-dimensional. It was all over the place. So what you do is you either buy the script or you option the script but most likely you would buy something and anybody who's written a script that is a five most likely you're not going to have to pay very much for that script because yeah, sure. it means they're not they're not they're not an established writer yeah. then what you do is you go to somebody one of your friends and you say hey do you have any ideas on how to make this script stronger better but if, if they're a good writer they will they'll say okay well, here's what we would do. We'll keep the bones of the story, but we'll create this whole thing and this other backstory, and we'll add layers to the characters, and we'll put we'll put obstacles in there, and that's that's what happens. So there are scripts that are good ideas, but not good. But scripts. they're not well. They're not well well written scripts. Then there's scripts that are very well written, but they're boring, uh, <laughs> um, yeah. you know, or or they, they're missing something. So for me. Uh, primarily what, what I need to do is I need to find a script that's well-crafted, but also something that I feel is very obtainable for me to be able to execute a film
1: without spending a fortune. Right. Man, we're we're really running out of time. So tell me about the next project you're working on or what, what you're working on right now. So I will give you a couple uh, quick things. As a producer, you should always
2: have a few... Projects you're working on because you never know when you're going to come in touch with somebody that a specific type of project will resonate with yeah. so with that being said you also don't want to have 50 projects because then you're not very focused Yeah. so as far as the projects that I'm working on right now I'm working on my first documentary which I've never I've never done a documentary but I, I felt that the topic and the book was very powerful it's called The World is Yours, The Awakening. It is a spiritual documentary that we're going to execute as, a, as narrative pieces of a film. So like three mini movies with documentary in between. That is one project I'm working on. Another project is, is called The Last Judgment, which again is something that I feel is, is, is very marketable. It's a silence of the lambs Meets Devil's Advocates. It's a well-crafted, well-done psychological thriller that has great characters. That one. Then The Harvest, which is a, a high concept. I don't want to say supernatural because it's more of um, alien elements, but it's not like alien-like spaceships. It's more of aliens have come down to Earth to harvest our souls for energy. Okay. Yes. So so and uh, and then I have one faith-based project which is a family faith-based project called Call Me Luke which uh, is more like a Hallmarky kind of yeah. nice nice movie but again there is a market for that. Sure. So you should as a filmmaker have three or four projects um, again, when I had Warning Shot, I had three projects, but Warning Shot was the one that went because the script resonated with people. Actors read it and loved it. I mean, we got it to James Earl Jones. He loved it, he came on board. We got it to Bruce Dern, he loved it, he came on board. We got David Spade to play his first dramatic role in it. We got to have Tammy Blanchard, who's a Broadway actor, come on, we got to have, so, but again, the script was compelling. And we were able to get big stars on an independent film. So again, that's, that's where you want to gear yourself. You want to make sure that you have interesting, good content and, uh, and moving forward, that's, that's the key. That way, if you meet somebody who is spiritually aligned and wants to do something that's more spiritual, they might come on board there if they yeah. want this or that. So, so it's
1: basically not throwing spaghetti on the wall, but systematically setting things up. Spera, thank you very much for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard radio show I will see you at Metal early next year when we resume I hope Absolutely I will be there in January I look forward to it and thank you so much for the time and the interview It's a pleasure To contact Spera and to find out more about SDS Pictures go to sdspictures.com I'll be back in a minute
0: Welcome back
1: to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Absolutely No Bullshit Business Radio Show on Voice of America Business Network and we're broadcasting today from Hollywood Boulevard in the technology and entertainment capital of the world, Hollywood, California. With just a few days to go before Christmas, online retail continues to grow at the expense of bricks and mortar stores. I guess the question is, how can bricks and mortar retailers compete with online retailers? I mean online's so simple. Now, there's a steady narrative that says we are living through a retail apocalypse where online is going to take over and there'll be four closure signs on every brick and mortar retail store around. So if that's so... Why are e-commerce leaders like Amazon, Alibaba, JD.com, etc., so focused on building their own brick-and-mortar stores? It's because they want to revitalize physical stores by introducing features that are associated with online shopping, things like personalization, for example, because a whopping 65% of consumers said personalization and promotions are the most important thing in their shopping experiences. And the reality is that 63% of millennials have made an impulse buy due to personalization in the last 90 days. Not only that, but 46% of Gen X's And 29% of baby boomers also made an impulse buy due to personalization. So brick-and-mortar retailers have the same opportunity to reap the same benefits of personalization that online retailers do. They just don't do it. You know, repeat visits and impulse purchases are everywhere online, but much less frequent in retail stores. So retail stores need to invest in the right technologies and the right techniques to do so because they currently don't meet shoppers' expectations. I think one example is that 41% of consumers expect sales associates to know about their previous purchases. But hardly anybody's ever experienced that. Now when you walk in, the store should know who you are And instantly up on the screen should come your history. And just think if you walked up to the counter and they said, oh, how did you enjoy that hat that you bought three weeks ago? That would be a great start. And the reality is that physical retail's personalization is being outperformed by e-commerce. But there are a stack of techniques and technologies available that can help retailers identify and track consumers in store and then those techniques and technologies can be used to bolster their personalization capabilities. There's also a whole bunch of different channels through which retailers can reach consumers with their personalized offerings in store. You can also use their mobile phones to contact them when they're at home, on the way to the store, while they're in store, offer them promotions, all those things are available, but bricks and mortar retailers don't use them. Consumers say that a personalized shopping experience can inspire loyalty and increases in spending, but brick and mortar retailers are not meeting consumers in-store personalization expectations. The nature of online shopping gives e-commerce, obviously, an upper hand when it comes to personalization. But physical retailers can close the gap in personalization by identifying consumers when they enter, tracking them right through their journey, and using that information for promotions, for individualized offerings. There's a whole bunch of things you can do. And to make the most of personalised offerings, retailers must consider how content is being presented to consumers in-store and then what the strengths of each of the channels are. The reality is that if physical retailers fail to improve their in-store personalisation, they risk losing even more sales and more market share to e-commerce companies, both online and in-store. There are lots of ways you can do it. In fact, when we come back in the new year, I'll talk about some of the ways that you can reach, that brick-and-mortar retailers can actually reach customers everywhere from their home right through to the cash register. Now, remember, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. Get out of the way. Let somebody who wants to succeed get past you. It's easier and it's much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. Anybody can do the ordinary. 99% of people are ordinary. You don't want to be one of them. You want to be one of the special people. So if you're always trying to be normal, you'll always be boring. And you'll never, ever know just how amazing it can be if you break out of the shell. So I hope you can... Join me again next Tuesday. It is Christmas night, so if you do join me, you'll be crazy. But I'll be here. We'll be broadcasting from our studio on Hollywood Boulevard. In the meanwhile, have a great week. A fantastic Christmas. And continue to be successful. Because the alternative to success
0: really sucks. This is Bob Pritchard. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.